Hello, welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. This is episode 16, although some of them don't really count because we're just reading the Gospel Topics essays. So anyway, it's number 16 in the line of whether you want to call those episodes or not. Um, today we are going to be talking about the secondhand accounts of the First Division. I have gathered 10 of them, but if you guys know of any others that I have not included, please send them my way at julia.analyzing.mormonism at gmail.com. It's a long email. It is a long email. <laughs> Eventually, maybe I can, I don't know, figure something else out. Okay, so the there are 10 of these accounts. The first one comes from Orson Pratt in 1840. Do you want to read it, babe? I will read it. When somewhere about 14 or 15 years old, he began seriously to reflect upon the necessity of being prepared for a future state of existence. But how, or in what way, to prepare himself was a question, as yet undetermined in his own mind, he perceived that it was a question of infinite importance, and that the salvation of his soul depended upon a correct understanding of the same. He saw that if he understood not the way, it would be impossible to walk in it, except by chance, and the thought of resting his hopes of eternal life upon chance or uncertainties was more than he could endure. If he went to the religious denominations to seek information, each one pointed to its particular tenets, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, while at the same time the doctrines of each were, in many respects, in direct opposition to one another. It also occurred to his mind that God was not the author of but one doctrine, and therefore could not acknowledge but one denomination as his church, and that such denomination must be a people who believe and teach that one doctrine, whatever it may be, and build upon the same. He then reflected upon the immense number of doctrines now in the world which had given rise to many hundreds of different denominations. The great question to be decided in his mind was, if any one of these denominations be the Church of Christ, which one is it? Until he could become satisfied in relation to this question, he could not rest contented. To trust to the decisions of fallible man and build his hopes upon the same without any certainty and knowledge of his own would not satisfy the anxious desires that pervaded his breast. To decide, without any positive and definite evidence, on in which he could rely, upon a subject involving the future welfare of his soul, was revolting to his feelings. The only alternative that seemed to be left him was to read the scriptures and endeavor to follow their directions. He, accordingly, commenced perusing the sacred pages of the Bible with sincerity, believing the things that he read. His mind soon caught hold of the following passage— if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. James 1.5 From this promise he learned that it was the privilege of all men to ask God for wisdom, with a sure and certain expectation of receiving, liberally, without being upbraided for so doing. This was cheering information to him, tidings that gave him great joy. It was like a light shining forth in a dark place to guide him to the path in which he should walk. He now saw that if he inquired of God, there was not only a possibility, but a probability, yea, more a certainty, that he should obtain a knowledge, which of all the doctrines was the doctrine of Christ, and which of all the churches was the church of Christ. He therefore retired to a secret place in a grove, but a short distance from his father's house, and knelt down and began to call upon the Lord. At first he was severely tempted by the powers of darkness, which endeavored to overcome him, but he continued to seek for deliverance until darkness gave way from his mind, and he was enabled to pray, in fervency of the spirit and in faith. And while thus pouring out his soul, anxiously desiring an answer from God, he at length saw a very bright and glorious light in the heavens above, 
which at first seemed to be at a considerable distance. He continued praying while the light appeared to be gradually descending towards him, and as it drew nearer, it increased in brightness and magnitude, so that by the time it reached the tops of the trees, the whole wilderness for some distance around was illuminated in a most glorious and brilliant manner. He expected to have seen the leaves and boughs of the trees consumed as soon as the light came in contact with them, but perceiving that it did not produce that effect, he was encouraged with the hopes of being able to endure its presence. It continued descending slowly until it rested upon the earth, and he was enveloped in the midst of it. When it first came upon him, it produced a peculiar sensation throughout his whole system, and immediately his mind was caught away from the natural objects with which he was surrounded, and he was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in their features or likeness. He was informed that his sins were forgiven. He was also informed upon the subjects which had for some time previously agitated his mind, that all the religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines, and consequently that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. And he was expressly commanded to go not after them, and he received a promise that the true doctrine, the fullness of the gospel, should at some future time be made known to him, after which the vision withdrew, leaving his mind in a state of calmness and peace indescribable. Thank you for reading that. Um, what stood out to you as you read that? Um, I'm assuming that Orson Pratt um, heard the the account that we, the church, accepts as the the correct story, right? Oh, so the that's a really good question. So this was published in 1840. The account in the Pearl of Great Price now, the 1838 one, is the canonized version. That was not published in the Times and Seasons until 1842, so it had oh, not been published yet. Okay. Wait, what made you ask that? Because it follows it very, um, like, upon its heels. Like, it talks about the power of darkness, but it wasn't the creepy steps that happened in one of them. Um, it's uh, talked about two personages, um that looked just like each other. It talked about how he shouldn't join any other church, that they were all wrong. Um, I don't know. Uh, just Well, with Orson Pratt, I think he was an apostle. Um, I need to double check on that. I'm pretty sure he was an apostle. By that point. He might have, he might have read his account, the 1838 account. I just know it wasn't published um, for the membership to see until 42. But that's an interesting thing. Um, I would also like... I don't know if this is sacrilegious to say, but what if Joseph got his 1838 or 1842 account from Orson's, like, description? Because, like, this is a very well-written description. And Well, the 1838 one was written in 1838. It just okay, wasn't known okay. to the public until 1842. Okay, so, so. that's not right at all. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It just sounds very similar to me. Um, so these are some of the highlights I pulled out. Um, not to say that they are different from each account. These are just things that stood out to me. Um, he was 14 or 15 years old. Um, his He was preparing for a future existence um, or the salvation of his soul he was concerned about. He was seeking the true church. I, I find this super interesting that Orson Pratt says that Joseph perused the sacred pages of the Bible. I noticed I was re-listening to the 1832 account, the very first one. And he says that from the ages of 12 to 15, mm -hmm. he had been seeking out through the Bible mm -hmm. which church was true. So that's 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. That's six years of him studying the Bible. Mm -hmm. Like, And so much of what he says sounds so biblical and New Testament-like. Mm -hmm. 
that it's silly to think that he didn't hadn't read the New Testament. Yeah, it sounds yes, the way he talks, yeah, sounds very biblical. Well, and he like the rest of his teachings um he's he's using the the Bible as his base. He doesn't ever give he gives very few sermons from the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. after it's published. Almost all of them are from the Bible. And not just not just the King James version, but the Greek version, the Hebrew version. Like he just was really well acquainted with the Bible. Yeah, that makes anyway, complete sense. So continuing on, so James 1.5 is referenced. He was severely tempted by the powers of darkness. His mind was caught away, which I thought was really interesting because in some of these other accounts, it makes it sound like a uh, an, a vision that's happening in his mind, not something that's actually physically happening to him or happening in the grove around him. It's just in his mind. And that, ju- that just stuck out to me. Um, so there's two glorious personages that appear in this vision, in this version, excuse me. Um, but they are not named as God That's or true. Christ, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. His, he was informed that his sins were forgiven, which you could say is Christ um, because he has power to forgive sins. But we don't know. That could be angels. Um, he finds out that all the churches are wrong and he was expressly commanded to go not after them, which is important because um, he seeks membership in the Methodist Sunday School later, which I, which I find really interesting mm-hmm. that he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Um, no. Okay. So this next one is from Orson Hyde, and it was published in 1842. So it seems like a lot of the first visions are coming out in 1842. This one was originally published in German, um, but we are going to read the English translation because I don't know German. (laughs) When he had reached his 15th year, he began to think seriously about the importance of preparing for a future existence, but it was very difficult for him to decide how he should go about such an important undertaking. He recognized clearly that it would be impossible for him to walk the proper path without being acquainted with it beforehand, and to base his hopes for eternal life on chance or blind uncertainty would have been more than he had ever been inclined to do. He discovered the world of religion working under a flood of errors which, by virtue of their contradictory opinions and principles, laid the foundation for the rise of such different sects and denominations whose feelings toward each other all too often were poisoned by hate, contention, resentment, and anger. He felt that there was only one truth, and that those who understood it correctly all understood it the same way. Nature had endowed him with a keen critical intellect, and so he looked through the lens of reason and common sense, and with pity and contempt upon those systems of religion which were so opposed to each other, and yet were all obviously based on the scriptures. After he had sufficiently convinced himself to his own satisfaction that the darkness covered the earth and gross darkness covered the nations, the hope of ever finding a sect or denomination that was in possession of unadulterated truth left him. Consequently, he began in an attitude of faith his own investigation of the word of God, feeling that it was the best way to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He had not proceeded very far in this laudable endeavor when his eyes fell upon the following verse of St. James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. He considered this scripture an authorization for him to solemnly call upon his Creator to present his needs before him with a certain expectation of some success. And so he began to pour out to the Lord with fervent determination the earnest desires of his soul. On one occasion he went to a small grove of trees near his father's home, 
and knelt down before God in solemn prayer. The adversary then made several strenuous efforts to cool his ardent soul. He filled his mind with doubts and brought to mind all manner of inappropriate images to prevent him from obtaining the object of his endeavors. But the overflowing mercy of God came to buoy him up and gave new impetus to his failing strength. However, the dark clouds soon parted and light and peace filled his frightened heart. Once again, he called upon the Lord with faith and fervency of spirit. At this sacred moment, the natural world around him was excluded from his view so that he would be open to the presentation of heavenly and spiritual things. Two glorious heavenly personages stood before him, resembling each other exactly in features and stature. They told him that his prayers had been answered and that the Lord had decided to grant him a special blessing. He was also told that he should not join any of the religious sects or denominations, because all of them erred in doctrine and none was recognized by God as his church and kingdom. He was further commanded to wait patiently until some future time when the true doctrine of Christ and the complete truth of the gospel would be revealed to him. The vision closed and peace and calm filled his mind. Thank you. Um, what stood out to you reading this one? You pointed out in the last one that um, it says two glorious heavenly personages, mm-hmm. but doesn't state Heavenly Father or Jesus. And again, it does that. And then it, uh, they actually talk in third person about the Lord yeah, granting him a blessing. I find that problematic. Like, why don't, why, if it is God in Christ speaking to him, why don't they say, like, he's answering had been answered and that the Lord had decided to grant him a special blessing. Why not? I grant you a special blessing. None of them is recognized by me as my church and kingdom. The true doctrine, my true doctrines, instead of saying true doctrine of Christ. I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of why there's without knowing the 1838 account, specifically just that one where he defines Jesus Christ and heavenly father without having that account. These could just be angelic visitations of two angels that just look like each other for some reason. Like, they all talk about them looking like each other, but they don't. Only, well, a few of them say that. You're right. So the last one said it. No, did the last one say it? Yeah, the the last one said that they looked exactly alike. Yeah, I think one of the four says that. One of them says that another one appeared like into the first, but you pointed out that that one was actually like... Well, it some, could be that... The, somebody that just appeared. That they appeared like the first. Yeah. But it could... I don't know. You could understand it two different ways. One thing that stood out to me in this one, this is a lot the same, um, but one thing that I found interesting is where he says that inappropriate images filled his mind. Oh, yeah, that was interesting I thought that was me. really interesting. Like, yeah, just like, must be really Maybe hard for a 14-year-old. trying to tempt you. Yeah. Also, Orson Hyde points out again that he is investigating the Word of God. So Joseph Smith, at the age of 14, is searching the Scriptures very heavily. Um, according to according to Orson Hyde um, well even Joseph Smith in the 1832 account says the same thing from ages of 12 to 16 well and I don't actually doubt that at all because of the way that he was raised by teachers <laughs> he was probably searching like reading a lot of books and yeah. I wouldn't and, and his mom was very religious interest, yeah and clearly he's interested in religion. his dad also had Although his dad was a universalist, which means that he believes that everyone is saved through the grace of God, um, he had, his father had so many visions of his own. So his family is very spiritual. So it doesn't make sense for Joseph not to be reading. And Mm -hmm. we have confirmation in many of these accounts that he was studying the Bible. 
Another thing that was interesting to me, in the last one you talked about how it sounded like um, he was having almost a vision more than an experience, Mm -hmm. right? And in this one, it said, where did it go? Oh, um, the natural world around him is excluded from his view, so it would be open open to the presentation of heavenly and spiritual things. Yeah, that reminds me of Nephi from the Book of Mormon, where he prays to have the same vision that his father does. And it sounds, it seems to use, I, it's been a minute since I've read the Book of Mormon, but it seems to use the same kind of language where he's caught up, or his mind is carried away to a high mountain, and he's visited by this angel, and the angel gives him the vision. That's just, that's really interesting that you pointed that out. The natural world around him was excluded from his view, so that he would be open to the presentation of heavenly and spiritual things. That's super interesting. So this next account is from Levi Richards in 1843. President J. Smith bore testimony to the same, saying that when he was a youth, he began to think about these things, but could not find out which of all the sects were right. He went into the grove and inquired of the Lord which of all the sects were right. He received for answer that none of them were right, that they were all wrong, and that the everlasting covenant was broken. He said he understood the fullness of the gospel from beginning to end, and could teach it, and also the order of the priesthood in all its ramifications. Earth and hell had opposed him and tried to destroy him, but they had not done it, and they never would. So yeah, that's the entire account. Oh. Um... So it says he was a youth. So Levi Richards in this is just not specific at all. He says Joseph was a youth. Um, he was trying to find out which of all the sects were right. The only thing he says about a heavenly vision is that he received for answer that none of them were right and that all were wrong. So in his account, there is no, there's no real <laughs> visitation by God. Yeah. It's just interesting. I thought um, his description of the... The dark spirit visiting was interesting. Earth and hell had opposed him and tried to destroy him, but they had not done it, and they never would. Yeah. So this next one is from David Nye White in 1843. The Lord does reveal himself to me. I know it. He revealed himself to me first when I was about 14 years old, a mere boy. I will tell you about it. There was a reformation among the different religious denominations in the neighborhood where I lived, and I became serious and was desirous to know what church to join. While thinking of this matter, I opened the testament promiscuously on these words in James. Ask of the Lord who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. I just determined I'd ask him. I immediately went out into the woods where my father had a clearing and went to the stump where I had stuck my axe when I had quit work. And I kneeled down and prayed, saying, O Lord, what church shall I join? Directly I saw a light, and then a glorious personage in the light, and then another personage, and the first personage said to the second, Behold my beloved son, hear him. I then addressed the second person, saying, O Lord, what church shall I join? He replied, Don't join any of them, they are all corrupt. The vision then vanished, and when I came to myself, I was sprawling on my back, and it was some time before my strength returned. When I went home and told the people that I had a revelation and that all the churches were corrupt, they persecuted me, and they have persecuted me ever since. They thought to put me down, but they haven't succeeded, and they can't do it. When I have proved that I am right and get all the world subdued under me, I think I shall deserve something. It's a very uh, bold statement for Joseph to make. I think I shall deserve something once you've been all subdued below me. Okay, so what were your thoughts when you read this one? 
Um, it was much choppier. I had a harder time reading it just because it the words were not um, as smooth. I don't yeah. know. Um, it was like rough. I guess it was more roughly written. Yeah. We're saying on while you're reading, I was thinking about the reformations. Um, evidence shows that there were no reformations in Palmyra in, in 1820. There were some, I think, in 1824, and I think Lucy references those because the the Presbyterian ministers and um, Methodist preachers were, I think there was a Reformation then, then, but I think there was no evidence for a Reformation in 1820. I just thought that was interesting. So in 1824, he would have been, what, 18? So Joseph Smith, so the highlights for this one is that Joseph was 14 years old. There is a reference to James 1.5. I thought it was interesting where they talk about the clearing and the stump, um, the axe inside the stump. Um, I think that was a neat piece of information. Um, so two personages are referenced, and they are later identified as uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ. And what I think is interesting also is that he asks them his one question, and they answer it. And then he says, the vision then vanished. Yeah. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Like, that's not a lot. There's not a lot of substance to that vision. Yeah. In my head. Also, I listened to an episode of Mormon Stories with John Larson, and he was discussing this, these first vision accounts. And he says, this idea where Joseph says, I was sprawling on my back. So a lot of the visions, that's how they end, is where Joseph on his back and he like kind of wakes up, kind of that feel. Mm -hmm. um, and so John Larson was thinking like, maybe that was him having that, like a, a vision or a dream where he's coming back to. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes a lot of sense. And also this other idea where he says, they persecuted me and they have persecuted me ever since. Um, in Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History, she makes this um, kind of funny statement where she says everyone, this isn't a direct quote, but she says basically everyone and their dog was seeing Christ. And so if Joseph Smith were to tell anybody, nobody would have batted an eye. Jo nobody would have persecuted him. Especially if that's all he was known for was seeing right, God so and Jesus Christ rather than being known for cheating people out of their money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was receiving persecution. I just don't think it was related to seeing visions. Right. So this next one is from Alexander Nebar. I'm not sure how to say that, but it's from 1844. Brother Joseph told us the first call. He had a revival meeting. His mother and brother and sister got religion. He wanted to get religion too. Wanted to feel and shout like the rest, but could feel nothing. Opened his Bible. The first passage that struck him was... If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not. Went into the wood to pray, kneeled himself down. His tongue was closed, cleaved to his roof, could utter not a word, felt easier after a while, saw a fire towards heaven, came nearer and nearer, saw a personage in the fire, light complexion, blue eyes, a piece of white cloth drawn over his shoulders, his right arm bare. After a while, a other person came to the side of the first. Mr. Smith then asked, Must I join the Methodist Church? No, they are not my people. All have gone astray. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. But this is my beloved son. Hearken ye him. The fire drew nigher, rested upon the tree, enveloped him, comforted, endeavored to arise, but felt uncommon feeble, got into the house, told the Methodist priest, said this was not an age for God to reveal himself in vision. Revelation has ceased with the New Testament. Thank you. Yeah, that was really choppy. 
Um, so it, this is directly from his journal. And so these look to me like he's listening to Joseph and he's just writing down maybe as quickly as he could. Just like taking notes. Like, like hurrying. That's how it feels anyway. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like he's thinking out these whole sentences. Right. Um, so one thing I think was interesting is that he points out, again, a revival meeting. His mother and brother had got religion. His mother, brother, and sister got religion. Um, so I think Joseph, maybe it was Joseph, I don't know. But it seems like people are trying to backdate his family joining the Presbyterian Church. And we know they did not join until after Alvin died in 1823. And so they joined in the beginning of 1824. So that's interesting to me that he would point that out. Um, also, it sounds like he's just, when he references James 1.5, to, the way it reads anyway is like he just opened up the book and the first passage that stuck out to him was James 1.5. Sort of like when we ask questions and we open the Bible and drop our fingers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that. Of course, it never worked for me. <laughs> also, the presence of the devil, or the darkness, I guess, is here. Um, he kneeled down, he, he, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, he couldn't utter a word. And so I thought it was interesting that it gave a description of the the personages. Light complexion, blue yeah. eyes, piece of white cloth drawn over his shoulder, his right arm bare. That's that's the first time we've we've heard like a physical description. Yeah. Other than other than them being glorious. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's the first time we've had that. Mhm. Somebody so in the same John Larson episode that I listened to today, um John Larson makes the comment he said very rarely do people's memories get better over time? Um, so it's interesting when you listen to Joseph, historically the 1832 one would be the most accurate because that is the closest to the event, to closest to the, when the event actually would have taken place. Mm -hmm. um, so he's like, it's, imagine you sitting at um, on the stand to testify and somebody at first says, oh, I can't remember. I don't really remember who I was there. I can't really remember how old I was. And then the next day you're questioning them again and they're like, oh yeah, I, I was this old. These, these exact two people came and their story just gets more sharp detailed. and detailed. That's really suspect. Mm -hmm. that, that's not a reliable witness. I just think that's interesting. But yeah, so complexion, light complexion, blue eyes, white cloth thrown over his shoulders, his right arm bare. I wonder if that's a reference to the temple. Although I'm not sure how far the temple ceremony was in 1844. Kind of sounds, sounds like, um... Masonic? Oh, well, I was gonna say the way they, they draw Jesus, like, on, um... Oh, that's true. The, Just a normal depiction of Christ. Is that what yes, you mean? Yeah, the normal de depiction of Christ. But <laughs> the light complexion and blue eyes is funny to me. It reminds me of that conversation we had with your mom. <laughs> really, like, there's no way that he can be a white man. And she said, yes, he's half white. We're like, really? what? what are you talking about? Because his mom is from the, the Middle East, right? Uh -huh. She's from she's Jerusalem. She's literally a Middle Eastern woman. She says, no, he's part white because God is white. I thought that was so funny. I was like, holy cow, I've never heard that before. I was like, wow. So okay. Jesus is a white man. Because Heavenly, because Father, Heavenly Father is, is a white, white man. But like, how odd would that be <laughs> for Jesus to be white? Like... He had to be kissed by his disciples to be recognized. If he was a white man with light complexion and blue eyes, he, he would have stood he out. Stood out. Anyway, it was just. Yeah. Anyway. It was very funny and kind of embarrassing. Though. Yeah. I just had never considered that before. I don't know. It was mind blowing. I had no response. Yeah. It was no response to that. Very funny. 
Um, I, also, at the end of this one, he says that he goes and tells the Methodist priest, and the Methodist priest says it's not. This is not an age for God to reveal Himself, and the revelations ceased with the New Testament. But again, if you were to tell a Methodist preacher, "Hey, Jesus spoke to me," and he says that, well, of course, it is a bold statement for him to say that all churches are wrong. But for him to just go up to a preacher and say, "My sins were forgiven me because Christ said that," that's not. That's nothing to raise anyone's eyebrows. Like that's just a normal. Yeah. People have those experiences all the time. So those first four are published on the Joseph Smith Papers website. These other ones I tracked down myself, and these all come from the Journal of Discourses. So if there are other accounts out there that I have not included, um, included please, please tell me. So this first one comes from Brigham Young, and, eight, and it comes in 1855. And I can't remember which Journal of Discourses it is, but I can put that in the notes. But the picture of the journal is here. It was in this government, formed by men inspired of God, although at the time they knew it not, after it was firmly established in the seat of power and influence, where liberty of conscience and the free exercise of religious worship were a fundamental principles guaranteed in the Constitution, and interwoven with all the feelings, traditions, and sympathies of the people, that the Lord sent forth his angel to reveal the truths of heaven as in times past, even as in ancient days. This should have been hailed as the greatest blessing which could have been bestowed upon any nation, kindred, tongue, or people. It should have been received with hearts of gratitude and gladness, praise, and thanksgiving. But as it was in the days of our Savior, so it was in the advent of this new dispensation. It was not in accordance with the notions, traditions, and preconceived ideas of the American people. The messenger did not come to an eminent divine of any of the so-called orthodoxy, he did not adopt their interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. The Lord did not come with the armies of heaven in power and great glory, nor send his messengers panoplied with aught else than the truth of heaven, to communicate to the meek, the lowly, the youth of humble origin, the sincere inquirer after the knowledge of God. But he did send his angel to this same obscure person, Joseph Smith, Jr., who afterwards became a prophet, seer, and revelator, and informed him that he should not join any of the religious sects of the day, for they were all wrong, that they were following the precepts of men instead of the Lord Jesus, that he had a work for him to perform, inasmuch as he should prove faithful before him. Thank you. So what stood out to you in this one? Um, so he, once again, is not seeing Christ, according to Brigham Young. Yeah, so right. the, the next prophet of the church, it seems like he's saying it three times, if I'm not mistaken. First, he says, the Lord sent forth his angel to reveal the truths of heaven. Then he says, the messenger came, or did not come, to, a, to an eminent divine of any so-called orthodoxy. So he's saying he's not coming with... To, to somebody special like the Pope. Right. So he's referencing the messenger, and he says that... Lord did not come with... Uh, oh, okay. It says, he says, but he did send his angel to the same obscure person, Joseph Smith Jr. So three times Brigham Young is acknowledging an angel going to, the, to Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. I just find that very interesting. So this next one is from Heber C. Kimball, and it was in 1857. Do you suppose that God in person called upon Joseph Smith, our prophet? God called upon him, but God did not come himself and call, but he sent Peter to do it. Do you not see? He sent Peter and sent Moroni to Joseph, and told him that he had got the plates. 
Did God come himself? No, he sent Moroni and told him there was a record. And says he, That record is matter that pertains to the Lamanites, and it tells when their fathers came out of Jerusalem, and how they came and all about it. And says he, If you will do as I tell you, I will confer a gift upon you. Well, he conferred it upon him, because Joseph said he would do as he told him. I want you to go to work, and take the Urim and Thummim, and translate this book, and have it published, that this nation may read it. Do you not see, by Joseph receiving the gift that was conferred upon him, you and I have that record? Well, when this took place, Peter came along to him and gave power and authority, and says he, You go and baptize Oliver Cowdery, and then ordain him a priesthood. He did it, and do you not see, his works were an exercise? Then Oliver, having authority, baptized Joseph, and ordained him a priest. Do you not see the works, how they manifest themselves? Well, then Peter comes along. Why did not God come? He sent Peter, do you not see? Why did he not come along? Because he has agents to attend to his business, and he sits upon his throne and is established at headquarters and tells this man, Go and do this, and it is behind the veil just as it is here. You have got to learn that. First of all, I think it's kind of condescending that he's asking these questions. Maybe he doesn't mean Who's it that he way. talking to in this? Um, these are, this is like a general conference. So the Journal of Discourses is just a collection of discourses given by the brethren. And in volume eight, the, the, I don't know if he's called an editor or just the person compiling it. He calls it a standard work. He said it should be held up as a standard work for the members of the church, mm. which makes sense because if, if we currently are to take what the prophets and apostles say as scripture, mm-hmm. like in the ensign or in general conference, yeah. it makes sense for him to call that a standard work at the time because that's, these are the men called of God speaking right. for God. So it seems to me like he's getting three different stories mixed up. So he's saying, first of all, it talks like he, he sounds like he's talking about the first vision. That's why I put mm-hmm. it in here. But he says that God didn't come. He sent Peter and Moroni, but then Moroni bring, being brought up and he says the record, he's talking about the book of Mormon. That is Moroni. So he's conflating those stories. And then he talks about the angel coming and ordaining Oliver and Joseph. But in the story, it's not Peter who does it, or at least not the Aaronic priesthood, which is the priesthood to baptize. That was John the Baptist. So so it sounds like he's getting confused with church history. To Heber C. Kimball's credit, earlier uh, when... Joseph talks about the beginning of the church. He doesn't talk about a first vision. He talks about getting the plates and and seeing a, an angel um, and so on and so forth. So maybe that's... Because wasn't he kind of there, Heber C. Kimball? Because like, his daughter was one of Joseph's wives, right? Oh, so Helimar. maybe he was sort of like not learning from from what was taught, but rather was there and is like, don't you know, you know what you're talking about? So all these people that I've included in the secondhand accounts would have heard it from Joseph Smith's lips. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm calling these secondhand instead of third or fourth and so on. Um, so but maybe, it, maybe what I'm, I guess I'm saying is maybe he didn't hear it from Joseph. Maybe he was kind of saying it part from memory. Of, yeah. Well, and then in these next ones that we're going to show, there is a clearly um, people are getting stories confused. So uh, I just think it's okay. interesting. Like why? Like I'm not trying to poke at Heber C. Kimball. Because he is getting these three stories confused, I'm just concerned why. Why don't our next prophets and apostles, like right after Joseph, why don't they have their story straight? Yeah, why is there not a clear, like, why why don't they all agree on how Joseph became the prophet? Right, like if you were to ask a member nowadays, they they can know. They could tell you exactly. Mm -hmm. They could recount the whole story 
of the first vision. Yeah. In fact, every time I read the um, <laughs> James 1, 5, it just flows out of my mouth. I don't even have to actually read yeah. the words because I know it so well. It's in so many accounts. Uh, well, and not just that, but like our whole oh, upbringing. Yeah. I've, you Since repeat children, it. yeah. Yeah. For, That's for, very true. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's interesting also that, and he could be getting confused by like, why didn't God come to give Joseph the gold plates? Why was it a servant or, um, excuse me, why was it an agent? Why was it not God? Um, also, why did God not appear to ordain them to the priesthood? Oh, because he's got agents to do it for him. to do that for him. You can yeah. learn that. <laughs> I just think that's super interesting. Why did not God? I guess you could wiggle out of that one um, and make excuses for why he was saying this. I just think it's really interesting. So this next one is from George A. Smith, not George Albert Smith, but just George A. Smith from 1868. When Joseph Smith was about 14 or 15 years old, living in the western part of the state of New York, there was a revival of religion, and the different sects in that portion of the state, principally Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists, preached the necessity of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance in order to be saved, declaring that unless men and women did this and obtained what they termed a hope for the future, they would be into a lake of fire and brimstone and there remain forever. I have heard men spend hours in endeavoring to explain how long this hell would last. It was frequently illustrated in this manner. Suppose a bird could carry a drop of water from this planet to another, and be gone a year on the journey, and continue this until every drop of water on the earth was carried away, and then should take a particle of sand and go another planet, and be gone a thousand years, and carry one article of sand at a time until every particle of matter of which this globe is composed was carried away, that then this eternal punishment would have just commenced, and that the torture and pain there inflicted were so great that no mortal could conceive anything about it. The general effort in their preaching was to scare men into the road to heaven by such descriptions of eternal punishment. When eloquent men deliver such discourses, they produce, especially upon ignorant people, more or less agitation. And when this is pretty general, it is called a revival of religion. But when the excitement subsides and the converts have obtained what is termed a hope, then the sects who may have united in bringing about such results begin to scramble to secure the converts. It was so at the time to which I have referred in western New York. The Baptists wanted their share, and the Methodists and Presbyterians theirs, and the scramble ended in a very unpleasant and unchristian state of feeling. Joseph Smith had attended these meetings, and when the result was reached, he saw clearly that something was wrong. He had read the Bible and had found the passage in James which says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. And taking this literally, he went humbly before the Lord, and inquired of him. And the Lord answered his prayer, and revealed to Joseph, by the ministration of angels, the true condition of the religious world. When the holy angel appeared, Joseph inquired which of these denominations was right, and which he should join, and was told they were all wrong, they had all gone astray, transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant and that the Lord was about to restore the priesthood and establish his church, which would be the only true and living church on the face of the whole earth. Joseph, feeling that to make known such a vision would be to subject himself to the ridicule of all around him, knew not what to do. But the vision was repeated several times, and in these repetitions he was instructed to communicate that which he had seen to his father. His father was not a member of any church, but was a man of exemplary life. His mother and brother Hiram were members of the Presbyterian Church. 
Joseph communicated what he had seen to his father, who believed his testimony, and told him to observe the instructions that had been given him. These visits led, in a short time, to the bringing forth of the record known as the Book of Mormon, which contained the fullness of the gospel as it had been preached by the Savior and his apostles to the inhabitants of this land, also a history of the falling away of the people who dwelt on this continent and the dealings of God with them. So again, he's getting he's getting stories mixed up, right? Didn't you get that? Yeah. He talks about James 1, 5. He took this literally, and he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord sent his angel, and then he goes right into, without saying it, he goes right into the story of Moroni coming and visiting him three times in the night, and then him telling his dad about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I noticed that. I was like, wait, what? Why was this yeah, but he doesn't repeated several times? That didn't make sense. Right, but he doesn't reference Moroni, other than he says... These visits led in a short time to the bringing forth of the record of the Book of Mormon. So he is talking about Moroni there. But just before this, he's talking about the first vision. It's just interesting that he doesn't know the story. You know? Yeah. Also, it's interesting, again, they're bringing up Lucy and Hiram joining the Presbyterian Church. I thought they um, were Methodist. Is that not? Uh, no, they were Presbyterian. Joseph Smith was the one who was interested in Methodism. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so it's talking about his father being a man of exemplary life. Wasn't he like a drunk, a drunk? Yeah. Joseph, Joseph senior had a very rough, um, life. Um, probably a lot of it had to do with how he handled things. Yeah. He was often drunk. He did, he went on treasure digs so that he could get paid or that he could make money for his family. He lost the farm because of his, um, poor management choices, um, just a lot of hard things with, yeah, so him saying he was an exemplary, he was a man of exemplary life is, I guess, very kind of George Albert Smith. to get your blessing. Yeah, so Joseph Smith Sr. died September 14th of 1840. So this is several years later. So first of all, people are going to remember the best of you. Also, it's only like it's kind to speak kindly of people after they're passed away. Mm -hmm. um, so like I can see why he would say that. I don't think it's true. Um, well, and if what they know of him is his activity in the church, like you wouldn't know his past before right. Joseph started the so, church. So like mo mainly the members know him as the patriarch mm -hmm. and like that is a cool guy. I mean, he told somebody he would <laughs> <laughs> preach the gospel on the moon. So like, yeah. I want that one. Yeah. Mine just like talked about serving others and was boring. That's, that's lame. <laughs> <laughs> This next one is also from Orson Pratt, but he gave this one in 1874. Joseph Smith, generally known in the world as Old Joe Smith, was a boy about 14 years of age at the time the Lord first revealed himself in a very marvelous manner to him. The circumstances were these. This boy, in attending religious meetings that were held in this neighborhood, seemed to be wrought upon in a very wonderful manner, and he felt great concern in relation to the salvation of his soul. Many young people were wrought upon by the same spirit, and they commenced seeking the Lord and professed to be converted. Among this number were several of the Smith family who united themselves with the Presbyterians. 
During the progress of this revival, a sort of rivalry sprang up among the various denominations, and each one seemed determined to obtain as many of the converts as possible, and have them unite with this particular religious order. This boy, Joseph Smith, was solicited and advised to unite himself with some of the religious denominations in that vicinity, but being of a reflecting turn of mind, he inquired in his own heart which among these several religious bodies was right. I presume that many of you, at some period of your existence, have been wrought upon in the same manner, because you have been anxious to join yourselves to the true church of God, if you could only find which was God's church. It was not, therefore, at all strange that this young man should have these ideas passing through his mind, but how to satisfy himself he did not know. If he went to one denomination, they would say, we are right, and the others are wrong, and so said all the others. Like most boys of his age, Joseph had never read the Bible to any great extent, hence he was unable to decide in his own mind as to which was a true church. When he saw several denominations contending one with the other, he naturally enough supposed that some of them must be wrong. He began to search the Bible in his leisure time after his work was done upon the farm, and in perusing the New Testament, he came across a passage which is very familiar indeed to most of my hearers. The passage reads thus, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Mr. Smith really believed this passage. He did not read this as one would read a novel, thinking that it was all imaginary, but from his heart. He believed that it meant what it said, and he said to himself, I certainly lack wisdom in relation to my duty. I do not know which of these denominations is correct, and which is the church of Christ. I desire to know with all my heart, and will go before the Lord and call upon his name, claiming his promise. He therefore retired a short distance from his father's house into a little grove of timber, and called upon the Lord, claiming this promise, desiring to know his duty and to be informed where the true church of Christ was. While thus praying with all his heart, he discovered in the heavens above him a very bright and glorious light, which gradually descended towards the earth, and when it reached the tops of the trees which overshadowed him, the brightness was so great that he expected to see the leaves of the tree consumed by it, but when he saw that they were not consumed, he received courage. Finally the light rested down upon and overwhelmed him in the midst of it, and his mind at the same time seemed to be cut away from surrounding objects, and he saw nothing except the light and the two glorious personages standing before him in the midst of this light. One of these personages, pointing to the other, said, Behold my beloved son, hear ye him. After this, power was given to Mr. Smith to speak, and in answer to an inquiry by the Lord as to what he desired, he said that he desired to know which was the true church, that he might be united thereunto. He was immediately told that there was no true church of Christ on the earth, that all had gone astray and had framed doctrines, dogmas, and creeds by human wisdom, and that the authority to administer in the holy ordinances of the gospel was not among men upon the earth, and he was strictly commanded to go not after any of them, but to keep aloof from the whole of them. He was also informed that, in due time, if he would be faithful in serving the Lord, According to the best of his knowledge and ability, God would reveal to him still further and make known to him the true gospel, the plan of salvation, in its fullness. Mr. Smith had this vision before he was fifteen years old, and immediately after receiving it, he began to relation it to some of his nearest friends, and he was told by some of the ministries who came to him to inquire about it that there was no such thing as a visitation of heavenly messengers, that God gave no new revelation, and that no visions could be given to the children of men in this age. This was like telling him that there was no such thing as seeing, or feeling, or hearing, or tasting, or smelling, 
Why? Because he knew positively to the contrary. He knew that he had seen this light, and he had beheld these two personages, and that he had heard the voice of one of them. He also knew that he had received instruction from them, and therefore to be told that there was no such thing as revelation or vision in these days was like telling him that the sun did not shine in these days. He knew to the contrary, and he continued to testify that God had made himself manifest to him, and in consequence of this, the prejudices of the different denominations were aroused against him. Why should they feel such concern and anxiety in relation to his testimony as to persecute him, a boy not quite fifteen years of age? The reason was obvious. If that testimony was true, not one of their churches was the true church of Christ. No wonder, then, that they began to persecute, point the finger of scorn, and say, There goes the visionary boy. <laughs> I just, his persecution just keeps getting better. Um, so this one had uh, the same wording as the last one, where they talked about obtaining as many of the converts as possible and have them unite with his particular religious order. And when talking about the the uh, religious revival... I just oh, thought that yes. was interesting, and I and they hadn't said it that way in any of the other um, accounts. Yeah, that's interesting. So one thing that stuck out to me is that he says, immediately after receiving it, Joseph began to, to relation it to some of his nearest friends, and he was told by some of the ministers who came to him to inquire about it. And then they say there's no such thing as visions in these days. But so he's saying it to his friends in this account. And ministers of other religions are hearing it, and they're going to Joseph to talk to him about it. In the other in the other accounts, Joseph's going to them to tell him, but they're coming to him and telling him he's yeah. wrong. In the other so, versions, he goes to the Methodist minister and right. talks to him about it. But like this, he's saying persecution is coming to him, not mm-hmm. he's going and getting it. Like I just think that's super interesting, especially when we look at every. We looked at all of the newspapers that we could find and There's nothing. There was nothing about it. For any persecution. I just think that's interesting. Another thing that, that stuck out to me was he says he beheld two personages and that he'd heard the voice of one of them. In another one of the first four first vision accounts, he says that. He Joseph's Joseph's very specific. He's like, Well, I heard the voice of one of them. I can't remember which one it is. But I just think that's interesting because in order to identify who they are they all both have to speak. This is my beloved son, hear him. And then Jesus gives his message. But if he's only hearing one of them speak, how does he know it's God in Christ? Yeah, and what did the one of them say? Did, did, did Heavenly Father say, this is my beloved son, hear him, except he's not actually going to talk, I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, to hear the voice of only one of them, that doesn't... That doesn't make sense. That does not add up. So again, he's referencing Lucy and some of the siblings joining the Presbyterian Church. They're saying this like it happened before 1820. We know that's not true. They joined in 1824. James 1.5 is referenced to glorious personages who say, Behold my beloved son. He desired to know what church is right, and then persecution ensues. I feel like the one thing that does not change in any of these is James 1.5. So in the 1832 one, it just says he was given to studying the scriptures or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's no specific reference to James 1.5. So but it's still scriptures. Yeah, so you're right. Like, that is probably the most consistent. Yeah, it's 1-5. like literally the only thing that's consistent in every story. Yeah. Oh, oh, one thing else that I was thinking. Um, this is, like, really kind of not important. But Orson Pratt says he went into a little grove of timber. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to the, the sacred grove. It's a beautiful forest. It's it's bigger than I would call a little grove of timber. 
Um, it's beautiful. What I notice is the forests there are very different than here in, in the Midwest, here in Missouri. Um, the trees, it's very thick. The, the ground, what do you call that? Underbrush. Yeah, underbrush. Um, it's very thick. It's like hard to get through things. But here in the Sacred Grove, to me, if I remember correctly, it feels like the trees are like really spread out and the ground cover is just like, like there's nothing there. It's just like you could walk anywhere. Like there are paths there because people go there all the time. But like, I don't know, it's just really pretty. So whenever he talks about the, the thick darkness gathered around him, like that forest doesn't seem to get dark. It's right. not a scary thing. Like my daughter's terrified of going into forests because she's afraid of that darkness. Like it's a, I don't know, you can't find it. You can't see a way out. But that one's just like, it's very inviting. I don't mm. know. It's very. There's a lot of light. It's very peaceful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just thought, I was just thinking about that as you were reading. So this next one is, this is the last one that I have. And this is from John Taylor. So this is the third prophet of the church. And he says this in 1879. I had a visit from some of your folks during the session of the legislature. How was it and which was right? None of them was right, just as it was when the prophet Joseph asked the angel which of the sects was right that he might join it. The answer was that none of them are right. What? None of them? No, we will not stop to argue that question. The angel merely told him to join none of them, that none of them were right. Anything wrong here? Yes, considerable. There wants to be perfect freedom about all these matters. The feelings of our brethren should be consulted. A bishop has not the right to crowd or oppress. The priesthood is not given to him for that purpose. But everything should move on harmoniously, and the wishes of the people should be consulted and respected. I understand there was a little crowding in your election affairs. You were not more than ten minutes getting through your business. It is better to take ten days than to have such shameful operations as you had here, and you would have spent your time much better doing something else. So I, I put in more here than unnecessary. Um, I just didn't want it to feel like I was taking him out of context. Um, a lot of the talks in the Journal of Discourses seem to be political. Um, it seems like he's really getting involved in how his congregation votes. Um, but anyway, it's interesting that he kind of slips in the first vision, um, trying to get his people to what vote correctly, I guess. I don't really know what he's... Um, None of them are right, just like... Just like when Joseph asked the angel which of the sects was right that he might join yeah. it. The answer was that none of them are right. Yeah. What? None of them? No. And so it's interesting. So so Brigham Young, the second prophet, John Taylor, the third prophet, both say that Joseph was visited by an angel. Um, I just think that's really interesting. I feel like that was the rhetoric for, for all of... So I feel like what happened is Joseph Smith had these four first vision accounts and they kind of like got buried, I guess. Yeah, like and then and then they made the trek to Salt Lake, and then it was like the angel, and then it wasn't until later they had all the the documents and they're nailing down their story. Yeah, that they went with um, God and so it gives you a lot more credibility to to talk to God and Jesus Christ than it does to just talk to angels. Right. Well, one one thing that I do think is interesting though is that from the evidence that we have, the members who were joining the church. The people who were joining the church in 1830 weren't aware of a first vision of any kind. And so Joseph, two years later, comes up with this very common first vision where he's forgiven of his sins and he sees Jesus. It's just a very normal thing. Um, Like, my point is, like, people were joining the church without Mm -hmm. a heavenly first vision. And people were even joining the church before they had the Book of Mormon printed. I haven't... 
What were they? What were they? Wait, what do you mean? Because the, the Book of Mormon is printed two weeks before the church was organized on April 6th. But they had but a church were, organized. People had a before. following. Is that, what you're, is that what you're... He had a following before they, they could even read it, right? Yeah, that's very true. Um, because he had he had the eight witnesses before the book was published. He had the three witnesses before the book was published. So, yeah, he's getting a following before the church was even organized. I just think, like, why does he need a first vision? Um... I don't know. I just well, you were a missionary. Do you think the first vision? Is... Well, yeah, it it certainly super helps when you have a guy saying, "Oh, um, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ showed up." So yes, it is a huge helpful tool. But why, if he was getting converts then without the first vision, I wonder. Why it's throw just it interesting. In? Why throw it in when it's so problematic? Um. So another thing that I wanted to add, and I have not done this research myself, but John Larson in this video, and I keep referencing him, he, he kind of lays this timeline out where you have the first vision in 1832, where he sees Jesus. Um, very Trinitarian, Book of Mormon, all that's very Trinitarian. And then you go to the 1838 account and it separates them both. They're two separate beings. And then you get Brigham Young, who has this Adam-God doctrine, who says that Jesus and Jehovah are two different people, who says that Adam is God, who says that Heavenly Mother is Eve. And it's very confusing. So the church and the so the church at the time like kind of ran with it. That is still a fundamental doctrine that Adam is God in the in some of the Mormon factions. And so it sounds like what the church is doing is they were like in the in the late eighteen hundreds or early nineteen hundreds, like I don't know what the date is exactly, but the church tries to backpedal away from the Adam God doctrine. And so they don't go they don't rewind too far to the Trinity. They stop in 1838 and they say, this one, we will canonize this one because it is the most of what we want. And then they just mm -hmm. leave off the 1832. In fact, the story goes that the prophet Joseph Fielding Smith, I think, rips it out and sticks it in his safe. And you can see where the pages are torn and where they have been taped back in. I think we've referenced that before. Version. 1832 account. Because he's like, this is weird. This is, this is not helpful. So he ripped it out knowing that it would be unhelpful but it's out now people are fine with it now it's interesting that a prophet of god wouldn't see ahead in time and say oh the members won't care if he if it only references one being but in his mind there was a problem but, well, and there's a lot of things that you would they at the time would have thought that they could just bury and it wouldn't ever be found because they didn't know about the internet. Like, even if one person read it, it was unlikely that more than 100 people would hear about it. That's Whereas very true. Now, like, one person gets a hold of it and the whole internet has the whole, you know. Yeah, like, I can't remember who it was. I kind of want to say it was Joseph Fielding also. One of the prophets said we would never get to space. And we had already been to space. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know, it's just like they think that we're not going to progress as a people, I guess. I don't know. Um, anyway, so those are the 10 secondhand accounts that I have. Um, I wish I had tallied up how many say angel and how many say God and Christ. But it just it's just super inconsistent to me, this whole thing. But yeah, so that's all the information that I've got. Do you have anything you wanted to add? Let me say these things. <laughs> oh, oh, actually, I wanted to close out with a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley. Our entire case as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rests on the validity of this glorious first vision. It was the parting of the curtain to open this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. 
nothing on which we base our doctrine, nothing we teach, nothing we live by is of greater importance than this initial declaration. I submit that if Joseph Smith talked with God the Father and his beloved Son, then all else of which he spoke is true. This is the hinge on which turns the gate that leads to the path of salvation and eternal life. Well, thank you for joining us. We will have more as soon as we can. Can't, can't promise that it will be weekly, but, but uh, we will do our best. <laughs> well, have a good night, you guys.